Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Memoria Press. Welcome to Classical Etc. And this is our Christmas podcast. I have, uh, uh, I am Paul, and we're here with Martin and Tanya. And we have somewhat of a plan, but I'm stepping out of the moderator role this time and just letting this be festive. <laughs> How's that sound? Is, is, are you kind of a... Uh, uh, you thought you'd be a downer if you, if you possibly know? yes yes the moderator the, uh, what i am coming to realize when it comes to the christmas season is that um festivities are festive oftentimes because it gets us out of our structure and our routine well it does and you know it's one of the things when you when you have a christmas in particular because it's such a big cultural holiday um that you your your routine changes and I don't like it when I get out of a routine. I think most people are that way. And then it's, a, you really want, you're looking forward to Christmas and you have fun at Christmas, but then you're really looking forward to the return of the routine afterwards. Yes. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the routine that allows you to have the break out of the routine. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, it's not a break for me, but it will be next year. Well, you've got your husband's so my, a minister. And so, retiring yeah. from, this is our last advent. And so I'm trying to enjoy it, but I am a little harried. In the last advent, because your your husband disease. It's the so. last one where I am obligated to do so much. Where so this next one I'm going to pick and choose and not do everything and mm-hmm. just do the things that I want to do. Wow. Not that I don't enjoy it all. It's just a lot. Like every individual thing I have enjoyed and will continue to enjoy. You just never when they're get a all break. piled right together and there's no time at home, no time to breathe. Then and plus all the other stuff, you know, like getting gifts for people mm-hmm. and planning trips to see mothers. And Well, I've, I've read stories about people who, you know, they're planning on this time, like it could be a vacation or something like that, where they're, they're going to have time to do the things they want. And they, they get there and it's like, well, so what do I do? Oh, <laughs> you don't think uh, I'm going to experience that? I do not. I do not. I think I'm going to be, I think we're both going to really, after 40 years, mm-hmm. enjoy actually sitting in church together. and um just doing not very much at first. Hmm. I'm sure we will eventually work our way back in because we're both so energetic, but we're going to take a, a much needed break. And but and our church has been great. I mean, they give him a 3-month sabbatical every 5 years, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Not a lot of ministers get that. Mm-hmm. So, I'm very f- thankful for that, but also I'm as ready for his mm-hmm. retirement as he is. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be bored in my retirement. I have all of these. You've got a lot of hobbies. I've got a lot of hobbies. You have so many words. I don't, I mean. What does that even mean? I mean, I think you will just write a lot because you have so much you want to say. I'm not saying that they're good words, (laughs) but. But Martin, you also, you also I, came I knew in. there was going to be a, a you know, knife in there. (laughs) You came in with a stack of books, right? The rest of us came in with. With a st- with a group of papers and a gift book, and you came in with a stack of books. What I missed this. Oh, just wait, Tanya. I just happened to grab these. Oh, these are um, Christmas books. These yeah, are Christmas at, books. At first, I, I thought I bu- he, did a bunch at home. I, um, at first, I thought okay. he was doing the same thing he did last year, 
Oh, giving you a used book. So, yes. <laughs> so for our, I would never give our, anyone a used book. For our gift exchange this year, it's not exactly a surprise because after last year, I refused for Martin to give me a gift. <laughs> Therefore, that forced Paul to give me a gift, mm-hmm. which so, then forced that that Martin had to give me a gift because right. if Tanya and I exchanged gifts, Martin could only which give means one to himself. I then have to give one to Martin. So. so um, good luck with your used book this year. Okay. That actually may belong to one of Martin's family members. It's it's very possible. Well, let's leave that. How should we leave that for the end? Yeah, I think we yeah. should do the gift exchange last. I think. Oh, oh, oh the whole no, I, I was going to say your you book at the end. But. Oh, no, I'm just, these are discussion items. Well, but you don't have the book that we've, that, or the short story that well, we're talking. Well, it was online. I didn't want to print it. I read it. Oh, okay. I read it last night, not this morning before the show. Did you like it? I, I liked it. I, my comment to Paul, like I, I, I did you start in the before I got one. here? Well, we, yes, we did. Uh, was I, I did I did like it? It's nice. Um, there was a couple things about it. We should probably before I we start critiquing it, we should probably talk Introduce about what it's about it and say what which story it is. Yes, okay. I'm just thrilled that Paul found it because you and I are the Trollope fans. Yes, and we didn't know that he had written a short story yeah, well, about Christmas. Let's, let's talk about Trollope first. Who is Anthony Trollope? Because we're, we're we were, got a Christmas story. What's it called? Christmas uh, at Thompson Christmas Hall. At Thompson Tom. Thompson Hall. Thompson Hall. So okay. I, first of all, I found this because you all gave me grief last week for not having read Trollope. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I thought, well, what would be better than to go find a Christmas story, read Trollope and come back and say, well, of course I've read Trollope. <laughs> but, yeah. um, and, and looking for what we we're going to talk about today, I thought it was a good suggestion for all of us to read it. Neither of you have read it. And so this is what we decided to talk about. Today. Right. So, so who was Anthony Trollope? Well, he was an author right? in the 1800s. Mid, mid-1800s. Well, right? So would, was he, um, I'm not prepared for this question, okay. was he, um, did he know the other authors in the 1800s, late 18, or he was probably past Dickens, past Austin. I don't think he was past Dickens. I'm, I'm thinking he's mid. Because this was well, published in 1894. Okay. Well, then that would, there would be some overlap so, then. A little bit of overlap, but it seems to me like he must have been older mm-hmm. but or younger. Mm-hmm. But um, I do know that he worked for the post office and he, if I'm remembering correctly, it's been several years since I've read Trollope, but that he wrote, I mean, he's, his books are big. They're mm-hmm. like Dickens mm-hmm. books. <clears throat> and he wrote, I think, 1,500 words he would get up in very early in the morning and write 1500 words before he went to his real job and managed to write all of these series of books that are mm-hmm. just quaint. And he reminds me of um, McDonald. Have you read McDonald's fiction? Have you read McDonald's I have not. fiction? I, I have that on my things to do. As in George McDonald? Yes. Well, I mean, he wrote fiction about vicars, the life of vicars. Oh, I haven't read and, that stuff. Yes, yeah. so country vicars. Yes, right? and this yes. Trollope reminds yes, me of that. It's so. and there's a lot of upper class, mm-hmm. middle class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 setting of of all his books, and this is a little bit different because they're they're going they're traveling from France to England. From France to England. Um, it's a little bit different from uh, uh, some of his his book. Well, all of his books. All of his books are set in this in the English countryside, 
Yes. Um, before the corn laws were passed and some of these other things happened that really changed the whole economy of Britain. I'm sorry, I can't let that pass. What's a corn law? Well, uh, I don't know so much about the corn laws. I just know that they were one of the laws that they passed that uh, the British, because of, you know, they, they were running an empire at the time, they needed more food production. And the way that this was being done out in the countryside was not the most efficient way to do this. And so uh, when we come to Dickens, we see all these people in the streets of London. These are people, you know, he's coming in from the countryside. And and it's because the whole economy has changed and oh. the, the smaller landowners are being uh, pushed out. And, and pushed into the cities. And so there, there's this mass migration to the cities. And, uh, and it was a... It was very unfortunate, but at the same time, you can kind of understand the British, uh, you know, we need more food, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, and that's how that's happened here, too. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a farmer, you know, mm-hmm. you can see what's happened with, you know, these agribusinesses and all that. We produce a lot of food, uh, but it's it, it changed the culture uh, out in the countryside. So the, the, this life that 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 uh, Trollope is writing about in his novels. My, I've read the Barchester Tower, mm-hmm. several of the Barchester Tower novels. There's also the Palliser novels. Right. They just put out a new edition of that. Um, these are about that life out in the English countryside. And and I... Just that it, small community. That small, everybody small knows each other. Everybody knows mm-hmm. each other. Um, and, you know, he's writing about this sort of mid-level aristocracy, I think. And and just relationships mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. people. Yeah. I, I, on that note, I would say that the, what kept going through my mind as I read this is this is like a Hallmark movie. I this had to, story? Yes, this story. I had uh, to go back and look at the, the printing copyright date because I was like, wow, he was ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. This feels very much like a Hallmark movie. It's, it's very funny. It's very funny. It's one that I would, I, like, if I were watching this movie, I would be making side snide commentary the whole time um, about, well, of course it's so-and-so, you know, sort of thing. Um, well, when the, when the, so, so, so what's happening in this story? Let's, let's give, give the setting here. What's, what's the, what's the initial thing? A little summary. So, yeah. So Mr. and Mrs. Brown are, are traveling from Southern France back to England for, the Mrs. Brown's families, the Thompsons, Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Which it makes very clear in the beginning, he never has wanted to do. And she's forced it mm-hmm. this, this time. Right. He wants to go back. Right? He, he likes he, Southern France. That's yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't want to go back at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's, he's, you're, I'm never really, you're never really sure if he's faking a sore throat or if he <laughs> actually has a sore throat as a way of convincing his wife to stop the travels back to England and just stay in France. Well, he literally says, I'm, if we go, I will die. <laughs> yes, right. He doesn't want to go to this thing. And so- But I, he has I, a sore throat. Yeah. So when I'm teaching literature, that this is this is sort of the um, precipitating incident. You know, it, it's his, uh, his claim that he is not well and that he's going to die if right. they continue on this journey. They need to go home. All right, so- now the, And these people, I think it's important that they've been married eight years. Yes. So they've been married long enough that they know each other well, but still they haven't been, you know, I think they're still, and maybe it's just their relationship because it is a different time, Mm -hmm. but like not necessarily on the same page all the time and not able just to say, well, that's just 
who he is and how mm-hmm. he is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for so both of them. She's she's not unwilling <laughs> to believe him in this, but she still wants but, to go to her family, right? That's right. So they stop somewhere. Uh, well, they, they stop in Paris, Paris for the night. Okay, yeah. right. At a, ho- at a hotel. Yes. All right. And what happens from there? He says he's going to die if they go on. And she says, well, you'd be much better off in a home than in a hotel where it's not even very warm. Mm-hmm. So let's and carry you on the way a, there so that at yeah. least you're comfortable there. Yeah. And they're on about, about a half a day, day out. I they're think, going to Stratford. Whenever. Yeah, okay. So I don't know. Yeah. I by mean, train. Because they get there the well, night they go of the on 23rd. An omnibus. Yeah. What, I, what is that? Omnibus? Is it, a omnibus? double-decker bus. You yeah. rode on one. In From London. Paris to London? Oh, I know. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, uh, Or yeah. Stratford? Uh, no, but uh, yeah. And and so... Oh, oh then that's right, because then they get on the boat. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so yes. they go to Dover. Mm-hmm. That's right. But they but they got into the hotel the 23rd at night. The intent was to get up early in the morning of the 24th and be able to get to the... To Stratford. To, to Thompson Hall for the e- the Christmas Eve festivities. Mm-hmm. All right. So he's uh, 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 at least ostensibly ailing. Yes, but she and, thinks, but she's noticed that he is eating very well. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and, and drinking, and drinking very well. Very yeah. well. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. she tends not to believe him. But he does say he will... He will go on, but she he thinks that what he needs is a mustard poultice. Yes. And he saw a big jar of mustard mm-hmm. in the dining area. The dining area. And would she go down and get it? And this is like midnight. Yeah. <laughs> so she heads I'm down. Sorry. Is, is it, the whole time, I mean, I'm just having to convince myself that the mustard poultice is a standard thing. I've read about poultices before. I'm not sure they had, I mean, it is in a lot of this kind of literature. It was a thing, but I didn't know they had mustard in them. I do see mustard smells very strong. strong yeah. Yeah. yeah well, maybe so maybe it would be like a mint Vicks, vaco, Vicks vapor rub. But yeah, that, yeah, what strikes what me is that you could only leave it on for 20 minutes and then it would do something to your skin. That mm-hmm. I wouldn't have, I feel like I could leave mustard on my skin yeah. for. I'm going to ask for that next time I'm sick. A mustard poultice. Uh, yeah, so so he's um so she goes out at midnight to what get happens? it for him because she wants him to leave with her, mm-hmm. and so at she gets lost, and then she finally finds a porter who leads her to the kitchen. But for some reason, she feels like she can't say to him, "Can I have a little mustard <laughs> for a poultice?" Mm-hmm. Which makes no sense yes. at all. And she's Why got she a handkerchief. Put, she's going to put. Well, it. She, there's this. There's a description of her. About her being this like British matronly, yes, um, and, and the and the, the the illustrations in this don't portray her that way. She looks younger and thinner than she's described in the in the book. Yeah, with with her husband, she could on occasion be soft, but she was of opinion that with other men, a British matron should be stern. Mm. Um, and then she gets she gets compared to. Uh, being Ju- uh, Juno, right? The descent from her Juno bearing would have been so great if she had to tell the porter actually what she was doing. Um, she just felt like she she needed this air of superiority. Okay, so so she goes down there. The porter won't go away. Why won't the porter go away? If you if you in, in retro, well, well, we'll handle that. Just in retrospect, in retrospect, he suspects her of something, but I don't know what because when he gets when they get back up in the okay, hall, he won't but, go. But as 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 events proceed here, he, he the Trollope mentions several times 
that that she doesn't have any money to give him a tip. Yes. Right. He's waiting. Oh, he's waiting for, for the tip. tip. Yeah. Okay, it never bring... comes, and that has consequences in the story. Yes, but right? but so <laughs> when they get down there, though, she lies because she doesn't want to admit she just needs a spoonful of mustard. Mm-hmm. And so she lies and tells him she's lost her handkerchief. So he goes through every single dirty napkin <laughs> in the place mm-hmm. to find her handkerchief. She knows he's not going to find it. And so after they do all that, she says, oh, well, and she heads back up. No, no, he forces to walk. He, he insists on walking her back to her hallway. Right. And then she he wants to go to the door and she won't let him because her husband's in there mm-hmm. and she's failed him. So she's not going back into her room. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So then, so then as all this happens, then um, she then when the porter leaves, she goes back down to the dining area, right? Yes. And gets the mustard, puts it in a handkerchief and takes it up to the room. So she goes, the, the, the lady goes. Mrs. Brown. Mrs. Mrs. Brown is her name. Mrs. Brown is taken back by the porter to her room and he's, he kind of hangs around. She finally gets rid of him. She goes back down to the dining area with a handkerchief to get the mustard poultice. Yes. And then she goes up to her room. Well, she has very there. carefully made sure she get she knows how to get back to her room because mm-hmm. she got lost the first time. And she goes in and she realizes her husband's already asleep. And so she so she doesn't want to disturb him without But she's irritated because he doesn't sound sick when he snores. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> yes. So there's our first foreshadowing here. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, and so, so she doesn't she she when she like with the light she has she blocks his face so that he, she doesn't wake him up. Which is just a candle. Just a candle, right. And then she she lifts his beard and puts the poultice on his neck. and Basically smearing mustard on his chest on his, and neck. Yes. Right? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, all the way down to the collarbone, I think is what they said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, if somebody does this to me, I think I'm waking up. But he does yeah, not wake up. Th- yes. Maybe he'd had a lot to drink, too. <clears throat> yeah, well, and and... You know, so if so you're sick. so um, so he she applies sick. this. Well, this guy wasn't sick, but she applies the poultice to his neck. Yes, and then what happens? She re- she realizes it's not her husband. It's not her husband after she's got it applied. Right. So she's then gone she into the wrong rather room. than just wake him up and explain it, or go back to her husband and say, "This is what happened. Will you go explain it for me?" She's in a panic because if she leaves it all night, it's going to really mess with his skin. But she does it anyway. And I love the line. I love that line. Well, first of all, I love the part where she, where she recognizes and says she had put the mustard plaster on the wrong man. Not Priam wakened in the dead of night. Not Dido <laughs> when she first learned that Aeneas had fled. Not Othello when he learned that Desdemona had been chased. Not Medea when she became conscious of her slaughtered children could have been more struck with horror (laughs) than was this British matron as she stood for a moment gazing with awe on that stranger's bed. So then we've got pages of her trying to figure out what to do. It is pages. It really is. But I've. I really, I really resonated with this, though she completely recognized her duty and knew what justice and goodness demanded of her. She could not do it. I underline Haven't that. Haven't we as all well. been yeah. there, though? Because she's We're, in a she's in a dilemma, right? Because yes. she, 
if she leaves it on all, it's going to really mess with his skin. It's going to really kind of mess. Him but up she is in a strange man's <clears throat> bedroom in the, the 1800s. Is to, right. is to try to clean it off of him. I'm assuming and wake and him up. wake him up, and right. then she's found out. Right. Yes. And, and then, but also, right? She can't like go inform the porter that she was in a strange man's bedroom. Right. That's like, right. That's all right. of her options. Yeah, are all of her options are very unacceptable. Poor. Yeah. 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 So, and then who she blame it on? The French. She says, remarking to herself with a Briton's natural criticism on things French, that those horrid foreigners do not know how to make their figures. So she went to room 353 instead of 333. And it's all the fault of the French who can't write. (laughs) Absolutely. Those fives and threes just. So she goes, she just goes back to her room. Yes. And then her and her husband's wide awake. And her husband's wide awake. And she doesn't have his mustard. She doesn't have his mustard poultice because she she supplied it to another man. No, she but she tells him that the mustard wasn't in the dining hall. Mm -hmm. Um, She she fibs. She does not own up to it. And uh, she's at this point just working herself deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what happens after this? She goes back to the room. Uh, she has trouble sleeping that night. Yes. Well, she insists that they have to leave at five because she can't take the chance of seeing the porter or this Mm -hmm. strange man Mm -hmm. again. Right. And so at that point, she doesn't really sleep, but her husband makes her come to the bed because he has no idea Mm -hmm. what's going on except that she didn't get him the poultice. Mm -hmm. And she's insistent that they leave at five. So she gets him up, makes him a hot chocolate for his throat, and insist that they leave, and they go down to the lobby, and the porter stops stops them because he's holding the handkerchief, the handkerchief that had the mustard that she had left in Mister Jones's room. And as a good British woman, she had embroidered her name on every piece of clothing she had. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. the handkerchief has her name on it. Mister Jones woke up with his neck a hot mess. Mm-hmm. And a soiled handkerchief in his room with her name on it. And the porter, who she didn't get she, a tip. She, he, well, he's portrayed from her perspective as malevolent, right? Yeah. And 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 she he mentions again the whole issue with the tip. Yeah. She didn't tip him. All of this is really the result of her not giving right. him the tip. So he basically tells on her, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. And, and at one point, I think it even says that the man who got the poultice would have let it drop if it hadn't have been for the porter. Like yeah. the porter really yes. pushed this. Yeah, he pushed it. Yeah. Um, and so it <clears throat> becomes clear that this man who had intended to leave at the same time as Mr. and Mrs. Brown is not able to leave because he is he is very much under the weather because this mustard was on his throat <laughs> all night long. Yeah. 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 And you know, at this point, because uh, you were talking earlier about what this reminded you of, this reminded me of a P.G. Woodhouse story. This reminded me of oh, something that would be yes. a plot in Jeeves yes, in Worcester, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes. Only I think I think uh, Woodhouse would have he he had these ways of making it even more amusing, and I yes. think he would have probably well, done because that. Birdie is, was so dumb. Because <clears throat> yes, because Birdie was so dumb. Yeah. yeah. And and this is written many many years before uh, Woodhouse, right. several generations. So right. You didn't you didn't have that style of writing that could really ramp this up? But right. He he does a pretty yeah. good job of it. But and but so, it's also <clears throat> I mean it is very humorous for none of the people actually just being in, like none of the people are dumb. No. Right. Every not. single one mm-hmm. of them is trying mm-hmm. to do their best. That's right. In the circumstances that they find themselves, and yet Mister Jones, uh, upon whom this poultice has been visited, um, he is not happy. Right? No, he's not. But and he 
he, Mr. and Mrs. Brown go back to their room and she confesses all. And Damn, Mr. Yeah. Brown believes her. Mm-hmm. He believes that she mm-hmm. wasn't having a thing with Mr. Jones. Mm-hmm. And so he goes and explains to Mr. Jones, but you're right. He doesn't, he's not very forgiving at all, mm-hmm. even though Mr. Brown has done his best to explain. Well, and you could probably understand uh, after whatever the effects of right. his muster pulses <laughs> must have been that he's not happy. And, and, and in that conversation with Mr. Brown, uh, Mr. Jones makes clear that he is going to England to get married or to at least to mm-hmm. see or to get engaged, something along those lines. Yes. So he's going in the same general destination as they are. Yes, but yeah. they end up on the same bus, on mm-hmm. the same boat, mm-hmm. in the same train. Mm-hmm. In the same carriage then. In, that's right. And then they finally end up where? In the same house. In the same house. <laughs> They're going to the same place because what... Were the circumstances there at the house with the, uh, was it, is it, is it her younger sister? Yes. Her no. younger sister. Is engaged is to engaged. Mr. Jones. Is engaged to, as it turns but out, they don't Mr. Jones. That's and right. they have not known this all along. But the funny thing about mm-hmm. that whole trip mm-hmm. is that she kept her veil down the whole time. Like he wouldn't know who she was <laughs> and she didn't yeah. speak to him. And he didn't speak to them at all. That's right. And what's going through his head the whole time is. She did this deliberately, and as they get closer and closer, and it becomes clear they're all headed to Thompson Hall. He's like, "Was she trying to keep me from getting married to her?" You know, like he right. he's he is like falling down the conspiracy theory rabbit holes mm-hmm. of why in the world did this woman do it? He thinks he he still thinks it had to have been planned, planned, in some yeah, way. premeditated yeah. in some way. Well, and in is that not our natural tendency to think that something was planned? I mean. How did, why would she have come to that room? And then she, I, I think at some point finally explains to him that she was in 333 and his was 353 badly right. written by French people. And, <laughs> and that's why, and I, he seems to finally come around. Well, but. he does because she is, and she is very apologetic mm-hmm. and she is going to be his sister-in-law. Yeah. So he really <laughs> right. had so he, to, come he has to come around. Well, yes. And, and even before, before he's, he's come around, he's like, she, Mrs. Brown keeps saying things along the lines of, well, well, her sister says, I do so hope you'll love each other. <laughs> And Mrs. Brown says, it shan't be my fault if we don't. Well, at that point, her sister still doesn't know. About no, I think right? she does, does at she? this point. Okay. Because she's, she's told her sister. She's told her sister everything before the rest of the family hears it. I feel like that would have happened by now, but it doesn't yeah, matter either yeah. way. But, but, but the thing about it is, this is Christmas at Thompson Hall, but it's really not a Christmas story. I just, you know, I we were say, talking yeah. about... Mm-hmm how difficult it is to find a really good Christmas story when we decided to do this episode. Mm-hmm. And we were we were all saying, we don't know any really good Christmas stories. And this one is framed at Christmas, but it's really just a, mm-hmm. it's just a comedic episode that happens to be leading to the, a Christmas celebration, mm-hmm. which is, has very little to do with the story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a Christmas carol and and really very little else. I doubt there's anything really yeah, well, great I, in I, what you got. In my stack, well, I did bring our uh, edition our version. of the Christmas Carol, and it really, it really is the greatest Christmas story. There's, I don't think there's any question. Well, I mean, about Dickens it. wrote several more, and yes. they're not very good. No, they're not very good. Well, can I, can I just say that the the fact that this is kind of framed 
at Christmas time, but not really Christmas story is why I made the comment about the Hallmark movies. Like, right there, there, uh, there's, there's relational interplay in those Hallmark movies, but they're all set at Christmas, mm-hmm. you know, because there's this, you know, spirit of, of jolly good cheer and, you know, but, you it, know, and family it's all the, and, yeah, it's all these sort of accoutrements of Christmas that, mm-hmm. that culturally have, have gravitated around the holiday. And, and even, even a Christmas carol, is to a certain extent that way, although I think there are subtle intimations of the true meaning of Christmas. Oh, in I there. think a Christmas carol's full of Christmassy things all the way through. I haven't read it in a year or two, so I I, I'm, I feel I'm like it's well, you read it last year right. because but the we main <laughs> message the main message of it is not explicitly theological. I oh, guess. correct. Oh, theological. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not explicitly, Not explicitly, but definitely. But less saying there are implicit yes. things in there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so, and it's a wonderful story. He clearly believed in it in a way he did not believe in his other stories because of what the extent to which he went to try to get it published. Because he was going to bear oh, the really? burden of it. He was so confident in it, in it. I think the publisher was not that Oh, really? Excited about it. Yeah. I didn't know that about yeah. it. Yeah. So, so. That's funny because now <laughs> it's the Christmas story. I mean. Mm-hmm. It's made, it would have made it an Christmas absolute story. fortune for right. him. And one of the things about about the Christmas, Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol, is you hear all the time that this was the book that you know the man who invented Christmas. There's that. that I haven't m- watched that movie. Yeah, the movie, a movie about this, and how Christmas as we know it was not what it is now post a Christmas Carol. And I, I'm I'm. Wondering to what extent that really is true, because it was clearly a very important holiday. It's important here. This is written, mm-hmm. you know, um, before I, I think Dickens writes Christmas Carol. And I was reading. No, 1893. Well, when was Christmas Carol? Written? Oh, it had to be th- earlier than that. I don't know. I we, mean, I, I would say, Google. but even it wouldn't have been long. I yeah, mean, I don't no, know that. it wouldn't have been the, long. A Christmas Carol wouldn't have had an immediate the time the immediate to, to, to have Well, right, because was it immediately popular once he did get it published? Well, I think it was, mm. but I think the, the the influence of it, I think, yeah. took took probably but, but a But you even look, I mean, the, the sort of celebrations that they're having in A Christmas Carol, like, that wouldn't have rang true if some of those things didn't already happen, mm-hmm. right? Right. But but then you have um, I picked up and I am really enjoying reading this this mm. Christmas called Old Christmas from the Sketchbook of Washington Irving. Uh, is that one story? It, it's it's one work. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, with chapters and, and it's good. It, oh yes, and it's got great great old woodcut illustrations. Every oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, and it it, it, it it's not again it's not. The theolo- I haven't actually finished it yet. I just I just started reading this the other day. This but I'm is about so more than typical. Mm-hmm. Getting recommendations. <laughs> so, no, but I'm more than halfway through it, and I, okay. I this is just—he's just ruminating. I'm going to read it. on events at Christmas time, and he's going to uh, this old squire's house, and he's—he's—I don't—I can't remember what the the occasion is. I mean, the the reason for him being there, but it's it's this it's this old. He he talks about this 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 squire, and he's proud of the fact that they they are celebrate Christmas in the old way. Mm. And Which this is, is written pre-Dickens, pre mm-hmm. pre a Christmas Carol anyway. And clearly, Christmas is a thing. It, so, so when we say that that Dickens invented Christmas, it's clearly not um, doesn't mean that Christmas wasn't an important holiday, right? And I'm wondering 
you know what what it is about Dickens. What what did change with a Christmas Carol? Really, did, was it because this is it's a it's a feast, it's a festival, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so culturally, this this is this is a very important thing. Even in Washington Irving's time, he's writing earlier than this. So mm-hmm. I just that that thought occurred to me. That, and there's always a Christmas feast in Dickens' giant books. You know, when it's yeah. Christmas time, mm-hmm. there's always mm-hmm. a celebration of Christmas yeah. with gifts. Yeah. So I'd like to find out. So. What? How is Christmas different post I think Jane Austen in some yes, of her yes. books mm-hmm. has Christmas celebrations. Right. So it was happening, right. but so what did change? I don't know. But this this so old squire, this he's wanting, he's wanting the, there's certain old games they used to play mm. in the old days, mm. you know, old days in the mid 19th centuries, which is really old days to us. Right. Uh, and so there's a lot of that in here about what they did prior to that because he's wanting them to do that now. Um, and it's just, it's you know they're on this this old estate and it's it snows in the ground and and Washington Irving's uh, descriptions are just these 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 beautiful things. Um, he's he's a he's a he's a very good writer and so uh, mm-hmm. I, that's what I've been reading because I try to read one Christmas work every year that I haven't read before. To right. See if there's some other good material out there, but there there doesn't seem to be all that much. I can't. Stuff. I mean, we if. I would say if anybody has good Christmas stories, it would be nice if they would send them to us because we every year say that we would like to do a collection of short mm-hmm. stories for Christmas for our giveaway, and we haven't been able to find good stories. Yeah, and they're, you're going to have to find them. I, I just brought several things. The, other, the, the Fireside Book of Christmas Stories, uh, I bought that one. And then this one, which had the story, this was Christmas Stories Every Child Should Know. There was that Every uh-huh. Child Should Know yes. set of blue... People can see it here. Um, and there was a story in here. It was it was our favorite Christmas story, and it was called Christmas Under the Snow. Who wrote it? Um, it was written by I'll find it here. Uh, Christmas Under the Snow by Olive Thorne Miller. I don't know. And who it's that not is. online. I've looked for it online. Um, oh, you can't find it. No. And again, it's it's not it's not theological. But it is it takes place out in the prairie in the old west, and and the the father goes into town to get something, and and this blizzard hits, and so their house is literally buried under the snow with this chimney coming right out the top, and so it's just the story of what they did underneath the snow for several days. Oh wow! Before their father comes back, and it's just a beautiful little simple, charming story, which is I think. Oh, that's the most fun. appropriate thing for Christmas. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are some out there. We just we are we struggled to find them. We bought several collections that yes. just didn't have. Right. Well, yeah. How hard is it? It's like people feel like they need to write a Christmas story. Mm-hmm. They're great authors, but they really don't have a Christmas story in them. Yeah, and maybe our listeners could send in suggestions. That's what, yeah, that absolutely. would be great. That would be great. Yeah, that would be great. So now we have books here. Okay, we do. And I'm one of those. Guys, I want to like open the Christmas presents. You know, Christmas Eve. I'm, I'm, oh I'm, I'm well, to go at Christmas that time. wouldn't be very good radio, but okay. <laughs> so we have. We have so, we're not going to be. I'm not. Oh, that's yours. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I hope you haven't read it. You think I might have? I I can't remember. I know we've talked about it, but this is a Tanya knot. Is this a yeah. moment oh, where you need my knife? Yeah, I was going to ask uh, Paul's knife. I tried oh, to make it really. Let's not do the knife thing again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Have you read that? The Splendid and the Vile um, by Eric Larson. I have not. Oh, good. So, so I, it's the it's the one year the one year of Churchill's um, prime ministry during World War Two. So it's got Dunkirk in it, but it's literally just one year of it, the war. Yeah, the subtitle is a saga of Churchill family and defiance during the Blitz. It's just huh. so. It's just such a great, it. it is a great book and a great, um, it's got everything about Churchill in that one volume. Mm-hmm. It just in this one year of him trying to get through the war. Wow. That, that author wrote, what was that? The, the devil in the white city. Uh, Andy Sojourner just read that one. So he liked it, but then he wrote another one called Thunderstruck, which I tried listening to. And the narrator wasn't good, mm-hmm. uh, um, but every but the text itself was very. He's good. He's a very good author. So. A harrowing chronicle. Churchill's lessons of resilience and his style of steady-handed leadership are essential to the state of mind of American readers. A Vanity Fair. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to read that. I hope so. All right, Paul. I okay. think. Uh, what well, wait, wait. Uh, the, Is this mine? The, the, that's, Tanya, that's, Tanya, open yours. Okay. Who and mine's from Paul. That, that is from me. Yes. It's pretty. It doesn't look like a book. It is a book. It is a book. One of those. Uh, oh, the Red House Mystery. Yes. Have you yes, read that before? Yes, I have read it before. So yes. I was looking for a mystery. I didn't know for years that Milne had written a mystery. Wait, this is a. A. this is yes. yes the author of Winnie yes. the Pooh. Oh, the author of Winnie the Pooh yes. wrote a mystery called a Red yes. House Mystery. It yes. is very. I I remember it being just charming, just old world kind of charming. I was looking for Thank you. This a is mystery pretty. for Tanya that was written, you know, by maybe a more classic author than what she than normally what chooses. Than what I read normally. Mm-hmm. And, her British mystery. Mm-hmm. Yes. But here's another yes. British That's person. That's right. Yes. Who wrote a mystery. It yes. is, but it <laughs> is. But it's A.A. Milne. Yes. 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 Mm. And right. I'm I'm reading Winnie the Pooh right now because we're... That was the other thing I thought. Guide. I thought you could just go on a Milne, Milne binge. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, yeah. Paul. Oh. I, my wife wrapped it, so I... I love how the bow my was wife wrapped on it. Because it. last night she reminded me... Oh, it me, is. It's a used book. <laughs> a, she reminded me last night back. that I had to get a book for Paul, and I thought, oh... <laughs> Do you ever... <laughs> I mean... The Flaming Forest. Okay, now this one I, is a... Okay, let me explain. Another this is used by, book. Now there's nobody left no, for this you. No, actually, no. And I, my response, I, she, 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 she said, now, do you have a book in your library you could give him? And I'm thinking. <laughs> so, so we have to blame Joyce for this. I, I thought of the author and I went down and I've, I've been shelving my, my boys books. Uh, this used to be, you know, this was, well, these not boys books now. These are old adventure books. Everyone read, but, um, and I looked at, I thought, James Oliver Kerr, would I better go? And sure enough, I had a copy of this. I'd already read it. And I thought, this <laughs> is perfect for Paul. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a. I love it, the way you just don't <laughs> spend any money uh-huh. on us at all. Well, no, you think about it this way, Tanya. He has been spending money on us for decades. Oh, right. But he just held oh. on to it for that long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So um, this is by this is the Flaming Forest by James Oliver Kerwood. James Oliver Kerwood was one of the most prolific write, American writers ever. He's Canadian. When he, when isn't he passed he? away, uh, no, no, he, Michigan. Is, he, he, uh-huh. he, it's he, it is a novel oh, of, a the novel of the Canadian Northwest. Okay, so, but, so so so. 
So the James Oliver Kerwood, when he passed away, I think he was he he was the uh, I was wait, put it, he was the the highest paid writer living at that time. That's oh, wow. how popular he was. Now he wrote. He was he's his house was in a, a town right south of the Canadian border, and he would actually leave out of can out of Michigan every year for like six months, and he'd go up. And he would just by himself. He built mm. fifteen cabins by himself, um, and and then he wrote. And uh, he'd build a cabin, and then he'd go inside <laughs> yeah, it and write and a book. Go inside and write. <laughs> and so there used to be a genre of fiction called Mountie fiction. Oh, about the Canadian Mounties. They Gosh, were the Canadian, I'm so glad you didn't give they, me this. <laughs> they were they were Canadian Western. Thank you, Paul. Uh-huh. Thank right. you. And and the they they were different from American westerns because of the Canadian English influence. Mm-hmm. Okay, so American westerns are very individualistic. You know, there's the the two men on oh, the street, sure. yep. you know, alone fighting each other in a gunfight, and and it's it's that that sort of thing. Whereas Canadian westerns are about the Canadian Mounties, and the Canadian Mounties um, are basically a British creation. They were a, a lot of former British soldiers from the Boer War uh, had come to Canada and they went out and these were tough guys, but their the objective in a Mountie novel is not a gunfight on the street. It's going in and establishing order without firing a shot. That's the mm-hmm. English way. Of doing these, yes, it English is. So this is going to be this is going to be fairly boring. Is what no, you, it's an not. adventure story. No, he's a Mountie, but this is this is a great story. It's a great uh, story. No, you I, like, you I, like Kerwood. I do. I do look forward to it. This actually is very reminiscent of the uh, Sabatini novels that yes. that I enjoy. I mean, even just the printing of it. Yes, like it is, and, and it being an adventure story, I think I will enjoy it. And these are not in print anywhere, um, so you you have to find the old used copies of these things. And I, the what Kerwood's one of the authors I would like to, to help make famous again. Well, and here's your start. Well, <laughs> and, and Tanya, I will have you know, I could have ordered a used copy of this. Yes. Oh my goodness. And yet I, I, I tried to find, I tried to one. find found a pretty, a pretty one. one. You did find a pretty one. But I couldn't find any, I, I looked, seen... I looked everywhere looking for online pictures of the inside. Cause I was, I was, oh, look, I was the worried. Inside's the inside's nice. Yeah. I was worried the inside it's wouldn't nice. be nice. No, but it it's nice. nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to next year again. So maybe I can give Tanya a gift and, and we might, we might, I mean, this is in pretty good shape. Well, when we get a host, it's their there. turn. Well, I was going to say, we might just have to make Martin give a gift to himself, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. So we didn't talk about what we're reading. I just want to say, can I just say, yes, say I finished you, Demon Copperhead. All right. I did. I finished it and I would, I don't know that I would have. If I hadn't done the whole experiment with David Copperfield first, because it's so painful, because it's so it's it's and I've thought this. What does this say about me? It's so much easier to read about an orphan child's difficulties in the 1800s than than modern days to read about Appalachia and the awful drug problem and the terrible um, disservice that we do young people. And, you know, it's just a huge problem. And it's very real. And she has done a very good job of of telling that story. And it's it's painful to read. Mm-hmm. So I 
Why do we like to read painful things? Well, I don't. I would have quit. Oh, would you? If I didn't know that it was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I knew that because I know how David Copperfield mm-hmm. ends and I in the parallels, her parallels were really just beautiful. If you had known how painful it would have been, would you have read it? That's what I'm asking. Oh, well. Because I, there's something that we like because, to torture ourselves in some right, ways. I don't know. I would have stopped. I really didn't know what it was about. I just was fascinated by the fact that she had taken David Copperfield Mm -hmm. and used that book as her model to parallel a modern day novel. And I was curious about that. Mm -hmm. But once I got into it and it got so painful, I think I would have stopped. But I knew because David Copperfield, you know, because he comes through and he becomes wiser and he ends up, happy i knew that that this main character who had was surrounded by so much pain in his life was going to be okay so i didn't stop mm-hmm. but if i hadn't done that if i hadn't read copperfield i wouldn't have finished this book yeah okay. and i like barbara kingsolver as an author but it's just hard and it's very a very painful book to read mm-hmm. it does end up fine yeah but it's a lot you know, it's 550 pages, and a lot of it is pain. Yeah. yeah. I know what Aristotle says, we, we read or, or watch tragic plays for pity and fear. Um, mm-hmm. th- those are the emotions that we... Yeah, because some, why would we want to have fear? There's some kind of catharsis fear? that goes on yeah. when we read something that, where bad things do happen. Right, and where, and, and, and it sort of express, it, living that sort of pity and fear is is in some ways a training ground for n- us knowing when we ought to feel pity when we ought to feel fear mm-hmm. and and uh, it's a part of his defense of the tragedies i think is is uh, it, it'd be, like it's, it's been a long teaching time. us it, yeah it's been a long time since i read it i should go back and reread that well and i, I think, think it, you know we say that about anything that we read you know what that one of the reasons we're giving students good literature to read is so that they can can experience things without actually having to experience them. And it would make you a more empathetic and a more compassionate person. And it certainly made me think about the the big corporations that have been throwing drugs mm-hmm, out mm-hmm. and have made them so accessible. The clinics where a kid, a teenager can just go and get a prescription of drugs. It does. I mean, there is something to be said for that social injustice literature mm-hmm. that does make you more aware and hopefully you know you would maybe even be able to do something about it yeah, yeah. so it's sort of a training ground for our emotions right i mean mm-hmm. and it's just I mean, again the greeks had figured all this out because the greatest tragedy ever is the oedipus story mm-hmm. and uh and that's mm. one where you're feeling all the and it's a terrible story terrible. And it doesn't end yes. all that well right. and, no, it, right. but, but there's something Something cathartic about that. Yeah. And and to think about, right, the the for us, for Tanya reading Demon Copperhead, right? She's there by herself just reading this, going, Why in the world am I doing this? Whereas for the Greeks to go they would go watch together mm-hmm. this, you know, this play of of Oedipus. And, you know, the idea right, when you're going to something, you're like, Hey, we're gonna you know, like this is a social thing. We're gonna right. And and I think that's what caused Aristotle to kind of think about this. Like, why are we all excited to go watch this horribly tragic story? Mm-hmm. 
is because it there is something that it trains us in. Is there? I mean, you're reading this story. Obviously, does this, but it seems to me like tragedy has really given way to comedy uh, in, in in the contemporary world. I mean, mm. and and we we like to amuse ourselves by sort of light, funny things as opposed to to these really serious, tragic uh, 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 things. We're not like the Greeks anymore. Why, why are we like this now? And I, I don't know why that is, but it seems to be the case. I don't know. It's, um, well, I mean, I feel like it is, um, it is more, probably more rare to have like a King Lear where mm-hmm. like everybody's dying, you mm-hmm. know, uh, or, or a Hamlet, uh, because that, that's tragedy in the full sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Right. Because in, in the, and I think it's in the poetics, right? What we have of that, where Aristotle talks about that, where like a, what the distinction between a comedy and a tragedy is not whether there's lighthearted things that happen throughout, mm-hmm. but what the end result is. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that we have, generally speaking, we don't like stories to end poorly. Like if if your book had ended oh, poorly, I would have been mad. You would have been mad, but maybe did. that's what you need to feel. But well, it had enough tragedy in it that you were just glad to see this one character be able to get beyond that mm. and to get the help that he needed. But his friends, his girlfriend, I mean, people were dropping like flies <laughs> over. Oh, this sounds lovely. You know, everybody, and he was an orphan. And mm. so he needed these relationships and they were all just destroyed by drugs. Mm-hmm. So. So you really need in a book like that, you need somebody to be a, you've got it because there's the hope is that all these countless characters who didn't make it, somebody did. There is hope that you can make it beyond drugs. Oh yeah, drug it just use. doesn't just leave us in a depressed yeah. state. That's yeah. right. Um, yeah. So I already mentioned Old Christmas by Washington Irving. That's what I, I'm reading over the Christmas time. What, what are you reading, Paul? <laughs> Well, I picked up the Prague Cemetery by Umberto Eco. Um, the and Prague I, Cemetery. The Prague Cemetery. That sounds like another uplifting story. <laughs> right. <laughs> I read a couple of chapters in it right before I went to bed, and I've completely forgotten what they were about in like the intervening two days. So I, that's, I was trying to decide whether I was going to go that route or whether I was going to pick up War and Peace and just try to crank through it over Christmas. I just hate to read War and Peace during Christmas. I'm going to wait until after uh. and hope that I can get through it before yeah. we have our next group. Yeah. So that's, meeting. that's, I haven't fully. Because Michelle uh, told me the next part's about war. <laughs> so I'll, I'll get through that quick. I know, I'll enjoy that. I know. Um, okay. All right. Well, Paul, wrap it up. Well, this has been our Christmas episode. And Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Hopefully you get a new book for Christmas. Uh, that's right. Everybody <laughs> May deserves all your a new friends book. be better than Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check out all the other shows on the Memoria Press Podcast Network. This has been Classical Etc. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you again soon. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.